This episode of the Let's Talk Data podcast series, Data Management Megatrends for 2018, features John Appleby, Global Head of the Database and Data Management in HANA Centers of Excellence, and Chris Hallenbeck, Senior Vice President, Database and Data Management, Product Management and Go-To-Market, hosted by SAP's Ginger Gatling, recorded live on April 20th, 2018. Welcome to our Let's Talk Data podcast series. This series is brought to you by SAP experts discussing current topics around data and data management. My name is Ginger and I'll be your host for this series. Today's topic is data management megatrends. For such a big topic, we brought in some of our big guns here at SAP. I'm fortunate today to be joined by two of our top executives. One of those is Chris Hallenbeck. I think Chris has been with SAP, what, Chris, since the beginning of SAP HANA, if I'm right. I am about almost six and a half years. Yeah, a good while. He leads our product and go-to-market organization for all things data and data management. He works closely with our SAP customers to help them drive their competitive edge. So he has a very good handle on what's going on with our customers today and the megatrends he's seeing. Thanks, Chris. Glad you could be here today. Very good to be here, Ginger. Thank you. Yeah. We're also joined by John Appleby. John exemplifies passion for new technology. He knows everything going on and not only all the new technology, but also how to turn that technology into competitive advantage. He leads our center of excellence organization and he helps our customers drive their digital transformations. So welcome, John. So glad you can be here today. Thanks, Ginger. And I've been here about six and a half months. So (laughs) Well, there you you go. So let's start off. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit more about what you do with SAP for our customers and some of the key megatrends you're seeing and the real data issues. Uh, Chris, just before we started, you were talking about what customers are seeing about their customers and what they need to do. So, Chris, would you mind starting us off today? Yeah, absolutely. The one that just strikes me is... It doesn't make sense, but it's a true, and we're hearing it from everybody and confirmed it with analysts, is this aspect that our our customers, companies, every company is actually having a lower understanding of their customer and of their business, you know, suppliers, distributors, everything about it. And you think it'd be going the opposite direction with connectivity, with the cloud, with all these vast amounts of data and machine learning, and it's actually going in the opposite direction. And when you ask them why, they talk about it and they say, look, we've had this massive data dispersion with our application. You know, most companies have six to eight clouds now. And there's data, of course, in the various hyper clouds, but it's also spread out between all these cloud applications. And the integration between those isn't there. And even when it is, the amount of bandwidth is low, the latency is high, and the cost to move the data is extreme. And it's causing problems. They literally have lost that view of their business, and and they've come to us and said, how can you solve that? Yeah, Chris, and it's totally true. I mean, and and that's sort of exacerbated by this you know, this explosion of data, which did actually happen, right? It, it wasn't just a trend that was predicted. So as, as the <laughs> no. volumes have they have increased and that's that's just got worse. I think the other thing I'd add to that is that customers are trying to figure out how to monetize that data at the same time. And for, for those that are being really successful, they're driving revenue streams out of the, the asset that is that is data. And you combine those two things together and you've got a really serious business problem. 
Yeah. And what, but I think too, it's kind of interesting because you can actually, part of the solution can, to both problems can actually help out. If you actually look at like these evolving trends of metadata, um, and metadata dictionaries, how people are now saying, okay, I've got to actually have a dictionary that knows where all these bits of information is. Okay. I've got part of my customer definition sitting up in a CRM cloud application, how they, how they go through and surf through my, um, website and ordering what they do is some log files that's sitting up in something like an Amazon object store. I've got other informations about everything they've ever bought, service orders, entitlements. It's to, it's in my SAP systems. And I've also got all this other data about how they use my products um, through machines and other stuff. And that's in all this IoT data that tells me the patterns of their use is sitting up in these distributed key value stores or edge databases. It's gotten really complicated. And so you have these metadata dictionaries that actually are taking a look at, can I map where all that is and then understand how to combine that data and orchestrate it so business users don't. But what comes in there, though, if I'm actually tracking who accesses what data, I can start getting proxies about how important different types of data is, which ones, which one's key, which ones should I keep in really hot stores and keep closer to the users for high performance, what's less important. And you can start even using various machine learning and other trends around those types of access patterns to understand how you want to store, optimize, or value the data, to your point, John, about what's important, you know, what, what, and, and what do I want to protect or maybe even sell. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. And then, and then the the final thing, which I think drives even more complexity, is is the truly different types of data, right? I mean, it's one thing if you've got an object store versus a NoSQL versus a versus a relational database. But in addition to that, there are a growing number of specialized databases, right? Like graph databases and and geospatial databases. And I know we just we just acquired Calidus, uh, and they've got a specialized um, database. And so that those kind of increasing diversity of data management systems is just is just driving this to be a, a really tough issue to solve. Yeah, no, completely. I, I I laugh. I think about data entropy. You know, there was you know you think about things hitting their lowest point of energy, and and these days it seems to be that everyone's looking for like the place of where it's the least costly to store and the easiest to access it for that one person. But in doing so, we just have data sprawl everywhere. And when you actually go to combine that data, harmonize it, and like understand customer, to my original point, it's so hard. Um, you know, I get why it ends up in these things like key value or like key value stores or a graph database, but the challenges that cr creates has sort of been uh, underestimated. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And you, you come to a customer scenario like I don't know, we we talk in healthcare where they're they're trying to combine the, you know master data from from patients with with you know transactional data that includes outcomes and then all the way back to test data and they, you know you need to combine those those sets of data in order to solve uh, problems like improving patient outcomes. Um, but so far it seems like really tough. Yeah. And what I think it's tough, I think also, you know, we're seeing this pattern. If you want to go another mega trend here, Ginger, is this aspect of there's this big shift coming back around security and governance on data. I, you know, I always think of we think of about this last decade have sort of been this of where data was democratized. 
and everyone had access to all the data anytime with any query, right? And that was sort of, we talked about agile analytics. Um, and of late, we've been actually talking about agile application building. And in both these instances, it's where actually power users within the business units could do whatever they wanted in building applications, doing, doing querying and, um, and mashing up data, for instance. But a lot of that has moved into the cloud, not that data's in the cloud. And now companies are waking up to say, wait a second, I've got personalized I personally identifiable information that I've got people sending into the cloud and doing analytics or doing, you know, or doing data science on it and putting it up. And they're at extreme risk under GDPR. You know, you look at that and while Europe's all up, up in the air about it, no one, if you do business with a European company, you have to follow the laws. You can get sued in a world court for the greater of 4%, 4% of your turnover, your revenue, or 20 million. That's what a large corporation, 4% of your revenue is a very big number. Um, and so you, everybody's going to have to obey these laws. And so that's really challenging when I have data spread out all over the place. And there are techniques to solve that um, and do that safely, but somebody's got to take control. And you need audit trails of everyone who followed that, back to the governance side. You know, these days of anyone doing anything, we may still have that, but they're going to have to do it in a safe way, and the company's going to have to track it all. You know, Chris, you're, you're, you're living in France, obviously, despite coming from the U.S., so you sort of feel that date today. But, I, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who who is a, a senior exec in a, a, a global 50 company, and he, he told me that he was just asked like two weeks ago to lead their GDPR initiative. I, I don't think that we've at all seen, you know, even the beginnings of GDPR and the impact it's going to have on, on, you know, how we, we view data privacy. I think we're, we're starting to see that in a social aspect in terms of how, how Facebook has got itself a little bit in trouble. Um, I, I have a feeling that when these fines start to come out, I mean, 4% of 100 billion euros is, is a lot of money for a large company, and and, and um, my suspicion is the European Court will go and enforce those. Um, probably it won't be until the first of those fines that's levied against you know US or another foreign company that really the world wakes up to that. I don't yeah. Know what your thoughts are. Oh no, completely. Um, I do think it's going to take the first court case to kick it over, or something different. You can't just keep letting everyone's information out and let anyone have it. There's got to be responsibility taken. And to that extent, he's wondering if this Facebook moment is that one where people are really going to change and, and will we see it and the clampdown and, and truly taking private information? I, I'm kind of with you. I think that moment night might not be Facebook because um, we're already starting to see it die down a little bit. But I think it will be the court case that comes up around GDPR, particularly if it's not a European company. If they get taken down in the world exactly. court, and if they get taken down in the world court, there's going to be the biggest scramble. Yeah, I have a question for you guys on that particular topic. I was reading an article yesterday about uh, data anonymization, I think it's called, in the software where we'll be developing programs that allow you to like extract this information but not extract it private. Do you think that's going to change how we're developing any type of software we have with any type of customer data, or what do you what do you see the impact of that on our development cycle? Yeah, I, I can maybe explain what it is, and then since I, I, I spend a lot of time with that, maybe John right. wants to talk about the impact. You know, the European, I think it is going to help, but the European Union has basically said, look, you've, 
you've got to show that you really protected your data or you did the best efforts. And they actually published a few approaches. Now, how to actually operationalize that in a in a massive way is something we at SAP have done and actually just launched. Um, and it's now production. And what it does is two things. One is it allows you to there's there's one aspect where you you go in and you talk about um you can upload data, and we basically modify that information automatically um, in such a way that the that the data is, if someone looked at it, the numbers are meaningless. But if you actually act upon them statistically, they're all accurate. And um, and and that aspect is very cool. I was trying to remember, maybe John, you can remember the name for some reason. It just jumped out of my head what that algorithm is. The other one, which is, will the platform smart enough to know that they're actually giving up information in a way that somebody could figure out who did it? Like, I may not know exactly the right, like, I can't, the system may not let me ask information about John, but if I'm really creative, I could probably know enough about attributes of John that if I did a query, that said, tell me everybody with these attributes, it would come back with the data on one person and I was known as John. Can you have a system smart enough not to do that? What's called K-anonymity. Um, and those are pretty, and those are very, very powerful um, tools. Yeah, I think, I think the thing that didn't play out yet and we need to see is, um, <clears throat> so the minute if you look at the options for data privacy, typically what we do is we take a, a copy of a production system and we start deleting and anonymizing stuff with a set of algorithms um, and it's extremely time consuming it's quite effective and there are there are tools and companies out there that provide that and, you know we've got this one based upon lsmw right that does does something similar we see the trend headed towards a database level uh data privacy what i don't know is from from a legal perspective um do we prefer a solution that really deletes and physically anonymizes the data over one that does it <coughs> does it ahead of time? Um, uh, that's that's the thing. I'm not sure we figured out yet, but we'll we'll see how customers feel about that, right? Um, in, in my opinion, the the data privacy solution is based upon an, an algorithm that runs in real time is a, is a better solution. Um, sometimes the regulators don't see it that way. Yeah, I think in all these instances, it's are people trying to to prove when they if they get sued or it's really when that they're that they did everything they could, you know? And I think exactly. software vendors have to provide them with approaches they can do to create that, you know, to truly go ahead and say, look, we really did everything we could. Yeah, and I, you know, I had a fascinating scenario from a customer I was talking to, and we. You know, we built a machine learning algorithm for them, and they, they it's kind of long story short, they took it to their board, and, and the board said, how do we know that that algorithm does what you said it does? Like, you know, the minute we have, you know, we have a perfect solution. We, we have how do you know that black that do box this algorithm. does that? Yeah. How do, yeah, exactly. And he said, we have people that get it right. And I'm like, how, are you sure about that? Are you sure that they do the categorization right every time? Well, then of course they do. It must be a hundred percent success rate. And this machine learning algorithm has, you know, 99.9. Uh, and, you know, societally, I think we're, we're, we're at a point where we're not sure whether we're quite ready to trust the machine to do those things. I think it'll come. Yeah, but I used to laugh. I was at one of the first companies that operationalized data science um, for all retailers and CPG firms and, and analyzing their transaction log data. And it was very funny because on the screens, though, we, we would have 
things were accurate to like 10 significant digits and because it would just compute it that far. But we didn't tell them it was like plus or minus 25 <laughs> percent. It was so they all thought it was so accurate because of the you know this level of precision of the numbers yet. Yet in actuality, because people didn't understand the statistics, the sort of standard deviations or other things, uh, it, they didn't understand the numbers and they people believe in the science being so perfect, you know, or even accurate to your point. Uh, and and they're, they don't know how to interpret all this statistics and other information that are being pumped out now. So piggybacking on what John was saying about machine learning, what are we seeing breakthroughs there with uh, what's going on with that? And how, how is that going to be impacting uh, problems we're going to be solving? What what are you guys seeing in machine learning and and uh, artificial intelligence and spatial, those types of trends. What do, what do you guys see from our customers there? I've just got a really simple perspective on it, which is that we have an, an awful lot of, of situations where we have um, humans doing repetitive, non-value-add tasks, um, like the, the matching of, of transactions or, or I don't know, I came, I came in an example in healthcare where, um, you know, they, they wait until the payer rejects uh, a claim before they look at the claim because they just submit them all. Uh, and so <laughs> there, are, there are tons of folks that are standing in the back office doing these repetitive tasks, and, and, and they're humans that are, uh, you know, phenomenally intelligent beings that can do something much more value-add if we free up that working capital within the company by automating just the simplest of things like if you're going to, you know, we know based upon those submissions that are made from provided to payer, which of those are going to get rejected because we've got a whole history. So we can we can go ahead and look at that uh, and build an algorithm that will be better than the humans and it will be proactive ahead of time. And then we can focus those those humans on processing the more difficult claims. Um, so, you know, we can just there's just so much at this point in time, low hanging fruit from the vast number of repetitive activities that are going on. I, I just think it's that simple. I think John's dead on. Uh, you know, anything that a human could do in you know, two, two to five seconds is, is going to be automated and free those people up. Um, we've seen that and seen those in test systems. I think what's interesting, though, um, if you – I was talking uh, to an um, – Gartner the other day, and they were telling me, though, that only about 4% of companies have actually deployed um, true home-built algorithms into production systems in the automation of business processes yet. So everyone's talking about it a lot, but they haven't figured it out. And there's a lot there because learning how to take and build a model that's accurate, and actually, to John's point, knowing it actually works, um, and then deploying that model and making sure you know how to do that and moving that through like staging and into production, which is something people haven't done. And then having it fast enough to score in the right time to deal with you know, within business process real time. And then watching that model to see is it degrading over time? Um, when do I pull that? When do I have to do a remodel? When have whether it's macroeconomic factors or other things happened? I want to do it. So that whole life cycle management about triggering off then to come in and do a remodel, and then how do I how do I pull that back? And keeping audit trails of all of what was done so that you have it from the governance perspective. Back to my earlier point, is so important. And, and that nobody's doing a great job of doing that. Um, and in building that into tools in the automation of business process, or even or or even in any type of of mainstream application. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really exa- I'm excited, for example, in the field of, of procurement, Chris. I'm sure you got, you know, as an executive, you get hundreds of, of these, you know, workflow objects that say, can you approve X? <laughs> I have no idea. And, and, you know, I, I had a, yes, like I an interesting example this morning and, and, you know, some, somebody had, had ordered three screens. And I'm like, he needs three 27 inch screens. Like, I, I just, I was interested in like, why is this guy ordering three screens? Well, you know, as it turns out, there's three people and they need a screen each and it makes perfect sense. But that did, you know, that, that is terrible use of my time even getting these things. I mean, what would be great would be is if you, if you, if, if you had an automated system, a machine learning system that actually was able to categorize and understand risks. Because on the other hand, I bet you there's things that I miss that I don't know about and, and where, we're wasting money as a company because we're not applying effective controls. Uh, so I'm really excited in, in, in the areas of machine learning where we're actually not using humans uh, because the humans don't do it. Um, I, I actually think that's almost as exciting as the, the automation of repetitive activities. No, I think it's true. I think also I heard about there was a I was reading a technology last night that a friend sent me um, and it was this kind of universal communicator. But what it was nice was because you have so many people reaching out to people, let's say a clerk who's doing well, one of the things you talked about, whether they're sending it to you, and sometimes you're getting a text message, could you approve this? Sometimes it's coming in via email. Sometimes they're using some sort of internal corporate messaging. Something that interpreted all that, understood the context, and then made the decision or kicked it into a workflow. So it just showed up on your screen, you clicked, and it took you directly to the right place. So even if you're going to have to do that <laughs> repetitive, annoying task, they made it as easy as possible so that it went right into context. I clicked and I'm off. So how do you bring in communication and different approaches, given that there's different, as many different ways of communicating these days as there are data stores, and, and tie that all back to make people efficient or even automate that so you don't have to be involved? Yeah, and I think the really important thing here, Chris, is the difference between a rule-based system and a machine learning system. And, and you know, people have been building, you know, rule-based workflows. If more than a hundred euros, then hits exception. That that is not business context. Now, um, that's what we're really seeing changing in 2018 is that we're actually these these algorithms can learn the business context by the by the approvals that happened from people that happened in the past. They can go and read all of that machine lit history. And turn that into a decision-making engine. It's it's a phenomenally exciting time. Yeah, I was going to ask one of the ones we're seeing that uh, to go back to a major trend, Ginger. I think is to talk about geospatial. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at it, eighty percent of all the transactional data out there has a, a aspect to it of location. And when you think about that, location is context. It tells you what had happened, where it happened, what happened around it. There's a, there's obviously a time dimension to that location as well. And, and tying that in, and those geospatial systems historically were completely disconnected. So you take all these asset intensive industries, utilities that have assets everywhere or just, you know, our, our cities, you know, where all the garbage cans, the trucks, the, you know, the pipes, um, and the actual different buildings and where the people and the trucks. And, and you're tying that. And that's always been sitting over in your like Esri geospatial system. And now we have all of the other data from corp, from the company, which isn't even tagged. How do we actually tag that information, make all that asset information that's available over in these other locked in systems like Esri and link those back for 
and then get these incredible insights through some of the techniques John was talking about with machine learning and bring those together. And uh, you know, I, amazing stuff's happening by now, linking that, the predictive and the machine learning together with the geospatial and data and linking and linking those systems together in a uh, major, we're seeing huge uptake in that at the moment. And which yeah, which Chris, I, I don't know if you saw this, but um, I don't know if you saw this, Chris, but um, yesterday Amazon just released um, uh, a system and you, you get a, a, a message on your phone, like a notification, and it says um, your package is arriving by 8 p.m. today. That's old news. Um, you are eight stops away. Track your package. And every time um, they scan and they send a photo now, so they take a photograph, and it comes back to you. And every time they scan it at one of your neighbors, the location of the truck updates on your phone like an Uber. And, and you know, the, to me, with geospatial, that's the big trend is, is, you know, we've had geospatial databases based upon Esri and ArcGIS and all this, all this stuff for, for years and years and years. What's new now is that link, as you said, back to the transactional information, the fact that they know it's my order. They know who's in line. That's phenomenally powerful because, you know, typically you're just hanging around thinking, is Amazon going to deliver it or they're not going to deliver it? Now, now you know, and I watched it literally. I watched the truck drive up my driveway on the phone and I looked outside and it was there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I can tell you in France, it means they're not delivering it. I digress. I shouldn't make a date into the French. Uh, it's a, they're very nice to let me live there. <laughs> they're all... <laughs> So just as a wrap-up, guys, I want to thank you guys for being here and, and sharing uh, at, at your level what you're seeing, these these trends that we're seeing in data management. Just if you could wrap it up in maybe just a sentence or two, each of you, as we start to close this out. What do you what do you recommend for the people listening, our customers, our prospects? I know we're doing a lot in this area. I know we have like the HANA Spatial uh, Hackathon we just had. We have a lot of innovative things going on. So uh, what is your recommendation to, to our customers just to check out uh, uh, what, what's going on with SAP? I know we have Sapphire coming up, but just, just, in, just a quick sentence or two, just what do you recommend to the people listening who want to know more about how can they can take these trends and apply them to their, to their business? Uh, I, I'm going to talk about, I mean, you take, we've been talking about various artifacts of sort of what's going on out there and we talked about the trend back to the customer and like and, and lack of that but if you could actually connect all those together which is what we've been talking about with data hub how could i actually know where that information is and orchestrate that information together and do that in a highly secure and governed way and link that back to my other enterprise data and of all different data types and using things like machine learning and others, and then have a platform to do that, to build applications on top of that, to analyze that information, to help with application integration, and really create a data fabric that addresses the fact that this data is in all these different data stores all over the cloud and on-prem, which isn't going away, and tie all that together, and that's what we've been dead focused. How do you do that for really highly secure information while following all the laws? And that's what we're launching at Sapphire. You'll hear it called HANA Data Management Suite. And it's really a framework of, of well-designed components that work together that solve this problem. So very excited about it. Great. And John? Yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I just think we're, you know, we're at a point in time where Digital transformation has become a little bit of a dirty word. We're in sort of post-digital transformation society. And I would just simply say, if you're, if you're, 
if you're thinking about this kind of thing, I would start by looking at what's the data that you've got and, and the you, you, good data that you've got, not the, not the stuff which is badly organized and you don't have it in, in a good quality and it's a mess, but what have you got? What are the assets that you've got, the data assets you have around the enterprise? Step one. Step two, what are the strategic objectives? So what's going on around the business and, and in the market? How, what disruptions are coming? Again, post-disruption society. <laughs> um, connect those th two things together. And then the confluence of those two things with multimodal data and machine learning is something that will add tremendous value to the business. And I would say go and look in that space. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We know you're busy and we just appreciate the time that you have. And I think you've uh, shared a lot of great information. And I hope everyone will join us uh, on the next episode of our Let's Talk Data podcast series. Thank you guys very much. Have a great day. Thank, thank you, Ginger. Thanks, Ginger.